you need somebody who just has uh, uh, some experience so they can ask the right kinds of questions. And I think sometimes those clarifying questions, um, something that helps redirect you or get a, a roadblock out of the way can save you months or years of anguish and confusion. And I mean, I just think that's an invaluable gift to be able to give someone. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Helena Sorensen is the author of the Shiloh series, as well as The Door on Half Bald Hill. She's also an editor and a writing coach, and she's preternaturally gifted at giving writers a little more courage and helping them push through the blocks that keep them from writing. This episode of the Habit Podcast was recorded in front of a live audience of writers at the first ever Habit Writers Retreat in Nashville. Helena Sorensen, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast for a live recording uh, at the Habit Writers Retreat. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So glad you're here. So one reason I really wanted to have you on this episode uh, was something that I read that you wrote on Facebook, or maybe you put it all over the place, but it, it was a note to mothers who want to write, I think is mm-hmm. what you could, yeah, for, uh, for moms who want to write. Would you mind reading that to us, and then we're going to discuss it? Sure. For moms trying to write, you have based your expectations of what you ought to be able to do on the words of people who were not primary caregivers. You have asked yourself to be two people instead of one. You have burdened yourself with the enchanting but deadly falsehood that your mind and heart and body can produce on command. Not all, but most of the books you hold in highest esteem were written by people in quiet rooms free from interruption. Some were written by writers who stayed alone in picturesque (laughs) cabins until their books were finished. Later, some of them went on to write books about the writing process, in which they waxed eloquent about how hard it was to get motivated in those gorgeous settings all alone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) You have come this far, friend. You have crossed a thousand bridges many will never have to cross. Do not let a gatekeeper, with his smug universal statements about what it means to be a writer, bar your way. You will find your own path and it might be a circular one, waxing and waning like the moon. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so much to talk about there. <laughs> Wait. I guess one, one place to start, you, you say you were, um, you've asked yourself to be two, person, two people instead of one. Mm. What do you, tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, I'm going to tell you that by coming around sideways. Okay. Okay. Um, My kids and I, right at the end of this year, basically because I was scared that I wasn't teaching them enough world history and feeling all those guilty feelings that homeschool moms Mm. feel, um, started a unit on world history that was... um, based on this National Geographic book called Why'd They Wear That? And it was looking at history through a lens of fashion. And I just thought, okay, this seems fun. Let's squeeze this in. Um, and it was, it was fascinating. I love it. Highly recommend uh, the book if you have a chance to go through it. Like a coffee table book, but kind of dense and, and really interesting. And when we got to the Industrial Revolution... And I started explaining labor unions to my children. We started talking about working conditions in factories, uh, garment workers' lives. And it occurred to me that this problem uh, of poverty and 
very poor factory conditions and very low wages for workers is still a problem right now in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, and it hit me in a new way that the Industrial Revolution, we're just beginning to deal with the consequences of the Industrial Revolution, but we're still not free of the lie that came with it, mm -hmm. which I think is this. When we saw that machines could produce steadily over the course of their entire lives, the life of the machine, <laughs> we wrongly assumed that the planet could do the same and that humans could do the same. Mm. Um, and so I think for a lot of us, when we think of productivity, we still think in, in businessy terms. We think of line graphs, right? That there's just this one steady line and it moves up over the course of my life and it's, that's it, that's what productivity is. Um, and so when we're forced to pull back from that for whatever reason, whether it's a uh, financial need, and I don't have time to write now because I need to go and get another job or, you know, new hustle, um, whether it's health collapse or just needing to take time to pull back, family needs, children's needs, you name it. When we pull back, we see that as losing ground and as mm -hmm. failure, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's just the one line and there's only one direction. It's, it's forward or back. Um, and so then the pullback feels like failure. It feels like ground that's lost, that has to be regained, which is already mm -hmm. kind of a, a weirdly violent and conquesty sort of way mm -hmm. of looking at the creative process. Um, and, and also because we're so, so anxious about the pullback, we don't really enter the rest that's needed. And we don't really focus on the other things that we, <laughs> supposedly we're stopping the writing for or, or slowing down the writing for. Um, and so it made me think about agrarian societies, which very much to a greater degree operated in a circular fashion, right? That mm. sense of the cycles of the year when people did their creative work, whether that was sewing or knitting or whatever, in the cold months. And there was no time for that in the summer. And that was just an accepted part of life. Nobody got all worried about it. <laughs> That's, we, we, we operate in cycles. Um, and women, right? We, we operate in cycles to a greater extent than men do, right? Um, and so that understanding that this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ebb and I'm going to flow, ebb and flow, this is life, right? And the happiest people I know are the ones who have made peace with every part of that cycle rather than resisting it. Um, but so if I'm able to cycle through, and this, um, well, I'll come back to that in a minute, but if I'm able to cycle through with the perspective that the process is supposed to be circular, then when I'm in a season of flow, um, I can be excited, enthusiastic, I can work, I can create, I can have my ideas coming, but I also can stand above that and say, this is not forever, right? And it's okay that it's not forever. And then when I have to pull back, I don't have to berate myself for pulling back. I can say, I'm going to enter fully into rest or into this other thing that requires my attention right now with no guilt and no shame, right? Because that's how it works. And then as I'm picking up speed again, I don't have to say, oh, I'm making up for lost ground. I'm not. I'm just entering back into the flow. And so then the joy is present in every single part of the cycle. Um, and I think that's something we're missing as writers, right? Something that, that's just, it's this unnecessary weight that we're carrying around all the time because we're seeing the process as linear rather than circular. So can you bring it back around to the idea of two, you're being two people? Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, that's right. I had more to say on this topic, so maybe I don't want to go there. Um, yeah, I just think the expectations are unrealistic 
Um, and, and I, you know, one thing that's interesting to note, when women get writing advice, we get it from either full-time female writers, right? The mm -hmm. professional ones who sit down at a desk and do this every day because that is their job. Or we get it from men who operate on a 24-hour cycle, right? Truly, men's hormonal cycle lasts one day, 24 hours, and their testosterone is high in the morning. So when you hear men writers saying, you got to write every day, that is a cycle that works for them. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> okay, I'm listening. I'm here. Okay, but <laughs> that's a very masculine cycle is what I'm saying, okay? And that's fine. If that's a cycle that's working for you, man, yay, embrace that. Go for it. But I think it, it, it bothers me when women have clawed their way to square one. Okay, they have worked so hard. I mean, I talk to moms who are like, maybe I can get one day per quarter. <laughs> That's the dream. Mm -hmm. And then they finally arrive and collapse, frazzled and exhausted, and someone says, well, you're not a real writer. And it makes me want to smack something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a different season and a different cycle, and there's no shame in it. Like, let's, you're here in the flow, bring the flow. And if you're not, you're not. Yeah, I love it. So, the can you talk to me about how you um, got? I feel like one thing we're talking about here is shame. Yeah, sure. A, a big part of what we're talking about here is shame. Mm -hmm. um, how did you bust out of that to the extent that you have, and and um, maybe you haven't completely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, for the most part, yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, I, I see people get trapped in this really funny thing where they say, um, you know, I'm not a real writer. And so I can't really prioritize writing. I, I can't give space or time to this because mm -hmm. I'm not a real writer. Um, but then they say, well, since I'm not a writer, I don't, I shouldn't really write. Right. Well, what, like, where's the, since I don't write, then I'm not a writer but I'm not a writer, so I don't really write. Like, where, where, where do you enter that self-defeating cycle? Um, I think maybe a recognition of that early on sort of knocked me over the head uh, to where I realized, oh, you, you just have to make a point of entrance. Like, I'm just going to, bam, I'm going to do it. Or I'm going to call myself this. Uh -huh. um, or or uh, another thing that I, I talk about sometimes is giving yourself permission, right? Like, mm. you don't... In creative work, you, you don't get a hand laid on you and, and blessed. You don't get called into the ministry. You don't get a degree handed to you. You don't get a promotion. You know, my husband talks to me about great things at work, and I'm like, what does it feel like to be praised <laughs> and, and rewarded for good work, you know? My kids can't stand me, and I'm making no money. Um, <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> Right? It's just like you, we're all walking around thinking, somebody, somebody tell me that I'm good at this. Tell me that I'm allowed to be a real writer and to prioritize that. And to prioritize it not just in, in a space in my home, but even within myself. To say, I'm going to set aside a corner of my own mind and heart that's just for my own thoughts. <laughs> right? that's, that shouldn't be hard, but it is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Wow, that's. Uh, the 
So you have made some progress in getting out of that cycle. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to the women in this room mm-hmm. about how? I mean, I, just today, we this this retreat is something like six hours old, and I've talked to several women already mm-hmm. who are struggling with this idea that somehow, you know, when am I going to have permission to, mm. like you said, have a little corner of my, they didn't put it this way, but mm-hmm. some corner of my brain where it's okay that I'm thinking about mm-hmm. these things and not these yeah. other people in my in my house. Yeah. Well, can I add, I don't want to ruffle any feathers necessarily, uh, just for the sake of ruffling, <laughs> but... Um, one thing that really bothers me is is this emphasis that's always put on women that there's just your primary calling and then there's your hobby, okay? Um, and, and the way that this is repeated and repeated and repeated, it, it, it's, it puts across this idea that we're all just poised, waiting to spring away and abandon our families to find ourselves, <laughs> right? Now, I'm not saying we don't fantasize about like <laughs> getting in the van and running to Italy, you know, but we generally do that out of places of total depletion, right? And we know that that's not our desire. And the suggestion that that is our deepest desire just ticks me off, <laughs> right? Like we, what yeah. we want to do is to have rich relationships with other people. We want to not be depleted all the time. We would love to be treated in the delightfully humanizing way that says you're more than a, a mother or more than a whatever it is, that you are a three-dimensional person with lots of desires. And heaven help you if you're only a mother, because when your kids move out, then you're going to have to build an identity from the ground up, right? Yeah. Like at some point, we have to maintain wholeness. And when I look at my children, I think, I don't want them to only want me in their life. That's just creepy. They need, <laughs> right? They need lots of things. They need community. They need activity. Yeah. They need creative work. It's clear for them. Why is that so hard to see for myself? Yeah. And you know, even in terms of motherhood, your children need to see you being something besides a mother. Yes, and that is very easy to say and very hard to find the support to actually do. Huh. Really hard. Mm-hmm. So where do you find it? I mean, that's a, a great question. My kids are about to start a uh, co-op in the fall where they will go on Tuesdays and Thursdays for six hours. 12 hours a week, which I've not had in 14 years, mm. all to myself. I don't even know what that's going <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people are like, what are you going to write? I'm like, I think I'm going to cry on the bed for a while. <laughs> and then I'll write, but I'll get back to you. Um, but yeah, how do you find that support? I don't know. And, and it's, it's sure that if you don't ask for it, if you don't value it for yourself, not a lot of people are going to rush in and force it on you. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is good stuff. (laughs) Thank you. Um, okay. So you, you are, you've been spending some time helping Mm. women. Have all your clients been women? No. Yeah. No. Helping writers. Mm -hmm, Many of them are are women. (laughs) Yeah. Work through some of these things in your, in coaching. Yes. And editing. Yeah. So, uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Well, like, what have you learned about, Mm. Creative process yourself, yeah. other writers. Sure, that's that's a that's an education. Yes, coaching other people. Yes, I'm very curious, actually, just about the things you've learned in the process of doing the Habit Podcast. I'd love to see a summary mm-hmm. on that in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, some of the things I come back to again and again, I've already talked about prioritizing. Um, 
allowing people or giving people permission to find space and time for the work. Sometimes if uh, a woman cannot cannot even imagine a way to prioritize creative work, we talk about it like it's another kid. Huh. Like this is a thing that's that you want to, to birth into the world, okay? Uh-huh. And it's going to require part of you and attention and care and time. So if you were to have an extra kid in the house, what sort of attention would you give to that child? And sometimes that's like, it flips a switch for people like, oh, I see. I could treat this like another child, not like my only child, not like my only work, <laughs> but like one of them, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I come back a lot to uh, just being a sounding board for people. And this is something I would have loved to have when I first started writing. It's so hard to find people who can listen. This is going to sound self-congratulatory, but who can listen intelligently or who can listen uh-huh. with experience, right? And most people, especially, you know, your family and friends like, awesome. Woo! Way to go, you! I like it all. Um, and that's not very helpful. You need somebody who just has uh, uh, some experience so they can ask the right kinds of questions. And I think sometimes those clarifying questions, um, something that helps redirect you or get a, a roadblock out of the way, can save you months or years of anguish and confusion. I mean, I just think that's an invaluable gift to be able to give someone. Um, A lot of times (laughs) someone will have, they'll have such intelligent things to say. They will know so many words, so many terms about story structure and character arcs. And I'll sit there for a long time wondering, why do you need me? Um, And then we'll finally come to the point where we realize, oh, they don't know what they want to write about. and that is really quite challenging. So one thing I tell writers is, okay, if you had the ear of the whole world um, and you were sure that people would hear what you said, but whatever it is you say has to fit on a throw pillow, <laughs> right? Like you got what, eight, 10 words, depending on the size of the stitching, what do you say? And inevitably they have no idea what they would say. Do and that's you have fine. an idea of what you would say? <laughs> well, with each individual book, yes, I do. You do, yeah. Yeah, I want to narrow that down to like four words if I can, you know, or, uh-huh. or very close. Because though it's definitely possible that you don't know what you want to say and you figure it out over the course of the writing yeah. process or that you think you want to say one thing and that changes as you go, mm. all perfectly fine. I think writers are waiting for some sort of exterior motivation that fuels the whole process from start to finish. Right, like that person I admire will finally say that I have talent and that will be all I need. Or I'll get that contract and that will be all I need. No, it won't. <laughs> it might, if it happens, and it rarely does. Mm-hmm. Um, if it happens, it'll feel amazing for two days. And then you'll think, what now? Yeah. Um, so the thing that you need to carry you from initial idea to completed project is, is this internal motivation, right? What is this fire and this guiding star that's going to carry me through all the days when I think, what am I doing with my life? Um, and I think if you can boil your, your message, your words, your uh-huh. whatever it is that you care, maybe it's even a question. I don't know if this is true, and, and I'm going to tell a story trying to find out if it is. But that thing is so concentrated, it's just like this little flame, right? Like the arc reactor or whatever. This is enough energy, and it's, it's pressed down so small and so tight that it will give me the energy I need to make it all the way to the mm. end of the project. Boy, you've got to have that internal motivator. And if you can't articulate it, it's, <laughs> uh. it's going to be really, really hard. Um, sometimes we try to re 
name or reframe a, something that a person is struggling with. I had a woman tell me that she felt like all of her words just went straight into a black hole and were swallowed up which is a pretty defeating way of looking at your work, right? But it was real. It, it, yeah. this wasn't, she wasn't flipping sure. about it. Like, I feel like this is going nowhere. Um, and so we spent some time talking about energy and the nature of energy and the fact that you, you can't destroy it. It can be transformed, but it can't be destroyed. And that uh, there are plenty of theories that say that on the other side of a black hole is a white hole, where all the light and energy and matter that comes through this side is carried somewhere else and released in a new form. And so all of a sudden, this thing that was a wall and an ending for her became a doorway <laughs> and something that was causing her to just feel hopeless and to not even want to try to write became energizing. You, you're, you're sending something out that is being carried into the universe. It will go on forever, right? D doesn't that make you want to write? <laughs> yeah, and I just think that's a whole lot of fun. Sounds a little like the new heavens and the new earth, that this work keeps going. Yes, yes. And the fact that I can't see where it's going or what it will end up as isn't relevant. Yeah. It's just going to keep going. Mm. Yeah. You, uh, <laughs> I was talking to, in a, in a previous episode of this podcast, I was mm. talking to Katie Bowser. Mm-hmm who got on the subject of Ignatian something. Spirituality. <laughs> well, she was saying Ignatian decision-making. Decision yeah, yeah, and, and, and I was trying to get... Maybe, that maybe that's what she said. Yeah, okay. And she said, well, the person you need to ask about that is Helena. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I've got Helena scheduled. So I, mm -hmm. I know you've, you've done some exploration of Ignatian discernment, mm -hmm. Ignatian spirituality. Mm -hmm. How has that shaped the way you think about the creative process? You're also going to explain what Ignatian... Spirituality and discernment, too. <laughs> and how's this affected the way you talk to other people about writing? Um, I do not feel qualified to go deeply into an explanation of Ignatian spirituality. I know that I have worked with a spiritual director for many years and have been part of spiritual direction groups and led those groups and all. And it's a, a super fun way, I find, to engage with silence, uh, with God, with yourself. And I decided in 2020 that I would do this... Um, the 19th annotation is what a lot of people call it, or spiritual exercises in daily life, which is this, they say rigorous, I say brutal. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a deep dive into contemplative spirituality, and, it, and you're, you're guided through, I mean, there are daily readings and prayers and passages, and you spend an hour in silence every day in contemplative prayer. You, you do the prayer of examine every night, which is sort of a reflective thing. You do this other stuff. You meet with a spiritual director once a week and just like open up your journal and read out your soul to this person. <laughs> um, and they just welcome it. They just receive it. And we, we see where God is. We see where movement is. We see where uh, there are invitations to something. And it's beautiful and really tough. Um, but one of the things that comes up in Ignatian spirituality often is the idea of a cycle here we go again, mm -hmm. of consolation and desolation. So in Ignatius's way of thinking, you have seasons in your life where what you think is true or believe is true feels true, right? Like I, I see it. I'm in this season of oh, God is good or, you know, love matters, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is, it feels real. Um, and, and so my interior experience matches my exterior experience. 
And then you cycle into seasons of desolation. And there's no there's no rule about how long these last. There's mm-hmm. no, you come and go, you know, it's it's very nebulous how you'll experience that and uh, and it's different for each person. But in desolation, everything that's around me feels like a contradiction to what I believe or what I think I believe. Uh, and that's a really painful place to be in. Uh, and so Ignatius talks about not making large decisions in seasons of desolation. I think that's an ideal. I mean, mm-hmm. how long have we been in a season of desolation? <laughs> like two years, don't do anything, just hold still. Um, sometimes you have to, uh, but, yeah. but the idea is that you are waiting for seasons when the things around you feel true enough and match your internal identity, belief system, enough that the choices that you're making are made out of your truest self, right? Mm-hmm. And not as a way of coping mm-hmm. with what you're experiencing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. How has that affected me as a writer? I don't know. I think it just reinforces the experience of uh, of cycles and seasons. You, have you heard people talk about friendships lasting seven years on average? Right? Yeah, that, that's the average friendship lasts seven years. And so if you're in a season where you feel like you're losing closeness with someone, it feels like a failure, right? Or some kind of commentary on your lack of commitment to the relationship. And maybe those things are true, or maybe this was just for a season. Your experience of that loss of relationship is going to be really different, though, if you understand that it might have only been for a season than if you feel like it was supposed to be forever, right? Hmm. So in writing, if my expectation is this output, you know, this the steady line, um, maybe I switch over to a circular perspective, and maybe it doesn't change my output at all, mm-hmm. but it changes my experience. Yeah. And it seems to me that that change of experience makes it possible to hang in there Oh, you betcha. Longer. You betcha. I've yeah. seen this come and go, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not a child. I know that this will pass, all right, you know, right? I have some maturity, some distance to look out over my life in these ups and down seasons and say, deep breath, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. How do you give yourself permission to do creative work? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's a tough question. Um, I think it's quite individual, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you are a person who can have imaginative encounters with God, right? And some people can, and some people, that's not really how they relate to God, and that's fine. But if you can, why not ask, hey, <laughs> does this matter what I'm doing? Is there a reason? Do you, do you have a name for me? Like, how do you see me? Um. And if you're able to receive an answer for that, you might be surprised at the kind of permission that gives you. Hmm. Um, you might just claim that identity, maybe. And if you're wrong about it later, oh well. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Around here, we call it putting on the tennis skirt. Well, so put it right on, uh, then. Yeah. Right, bye. <laughs> My wife, Lou Alice, had played, she'd been playing tennis for a while. It was, yeah. had, had gotten better at playing tennis, played all the time. And, yeah. But she, all the other women were wearing tennis skirts and she was wearing shorts. Mm-hmm. And finally, one day we were like, let's go just get a tennis skirt and put it on. Here we go. So that you're not, you know, I'm giving myself permission to be a tennis player, not just a person who happens to play tennis three or four times a week mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. I don't remember how she played, but, you mm-hmm. know. And 
it made a difference yeah. to put on a tennis skirt. Yeah, I think there's a, a big danger in in over-spiritualizing things to the point that there's mm. like this ponderous weightiness to the idea that I can write a sentence. You know, like, <laughs> is it the will of God? Yeah, I don't, <laughs> just write one, I don't know, you know? Um, and it, you know, sometimes you just have to take the weight off of it and say, I'm gonna write this thing. And if, if this doesn't end up being my destiny, uh, okay, I mean, like, when you were 17, what did you think your destiny was going to be, you know? <laughs> and did you then get an expensive degree in something you don't do anymore? Most of us have done that, <laughs> right? Yeah. I have, maybe I'm alone. Um, but it's okay, you move on to the next thing, and what, what have you lost by trying? Mm. I mean, look, can we focus more on what you lose by never saying the thing? Hey, Jonathan here, uh, breaking in from my desk. At this point in the evening, we opened things up to the, the audience for questions, but we didn't have the audio set up to pick up their questions very well. So I am going to um, repeat their questions or at least summarize their questions, and then we'll go back to the original recording for Helena's answers. So the first person to stand up and ask a question said this. Uh, in the seasons and cycles of write, the writing life, there are times that I felt I had to put my gift or talent on the shelf. But I realized later that the gift is not on the shelf, but being used in a different format that fits your life right now. And so this, this particular question asker said, you know, when she was raising kids, she wasn't writing a novel, but she was telling stories to her kids. So she, so those, those gifts of storytelling and writing um, were being put to use uh, weren't on the shelf, but they were at that particular cycle uh, being used in a different way. Uh, she also remarked that the cycle is not necessarily measured in months or years. It, it could be uh, long cy- cycles that, um, that last over a lifetime. So uh, she asked Helena to speak to that, and here's what Helena said. Yes, I don't disagree. I think that the, the seasons, the length of the seasons varies by person. Um, I think it's unfortunate that there is an assumption for all women that if you have children, your season doesn't begin until they're grown. I think that is how it works out for a lot of women, and that's perfectly fine if it does. You haven't lost your wisdom when they go. Um, But for women who want to have that as part of their life along and along, I think that is valuable too. Um, I was just thinking in terms of sustainability because, boy, we could talk for a long time about the creative energy required to run a household full of little people and how hard it is to have anything left to give, even if you have physical energy. Um, But I was thinking about Van Gogh, Van Gogh? I don't know which it is. I don't know. You know, the Starry Night guy. And um, I was thinking about how people praise his output in the last year of his life. Like, isn't it just unfathomable that he was painting almost, you know, finishing a painting a day. And I think, well, yeah, but then he died, okay? (laughs) I don't don't want at all to make light of of mental illness in any way, but what I want to say is we admire that, and maybe we should grieve it because that was not sustainable. Yeah, that's great. He gave absolutely everything, and he was so inhumane towards himself that it couldn't carry on. What if it had? The next question came from one of the husbands in the audience, and he asked, what would you say to husbands trying to encourage their wives in creative work? 
I'll go back to what I said before about the writer or the, the person who's doing the creative work will have to claim it for herself or himself. You can't force it on them. Um, and so, it, you know, you might very lovingly set aside a time for your wife to do this work. And if she doesn't reach out and take it, right, that's, that's on her. I think um, making space to say this matters to me, it matters to the kids, it matters to us, that you get to be a whole human being. And if that looks like, you know, every Thursday night or once a month or whatever it is that works for our family in this season, I want to offer that to you because I'm fully aware that when you get to be a whole person, everybody benefits. The next person to ask a question asked Helena to speak to the ways that this idea of seasons and cycles applies to women who aren't mothers. Well, I mean, I wonder how much shame is associated with with the pullback, with the seasons of rest or when I'm not physically able to do the writing. Um, I think we might need to banish that to say that's not good or helpful and not realistic. Um, let's just remove that from the table entirely. This is my rest week. And when I have, I mean, you hear writers sometimes in their books on writing talk about napping. <laughs> and it always sounds like a cheat or like a joke, like, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> but your brain works so much better when it's rested. I mean, I mean, how many of you have had the experience in the last two years of not being able to focus on anything because your brain is short-circuited from stress, right? That's, that's not a personal failing, right? Uh, that is a legitimate physical impediment to you doing your best work. Um, and, and sometimes I think we try to take our bodies and just sort of, well, just wrench them into control, right? I will force you to do this thing because you're really a problem anyhow, right? I'm a spiritual being surviving in this rotting meat just for a time. Um, <laughs> anybody get that message along the way anywhere? Um, but, but how well does that work for you? Right? And if it works this month, okay, well, what about next month? And do I want to be able to do this for the rest of my life or just this week? Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think the fact, I, I feel within myself that there's shame associated in the cycle um, and that we need to make war with that. Hmm. Another audience member asked, knowing what you know now as a mom and a writer, if you could send a message to younger Helena, what would you tell her? And could younger Helena have received it? Yeah, I think I, if a younger Helena was here, I would just pet her face. <laughs> <laughs> you poor, poor thing. Um, but you know, when I was getting started, it was right at the beginning of everybody's got to build a platform and you better write a book a year. Yeah. You better. I mean, that was the message I was given directly from an editor. If you're not writing a book here, <laughs> isn't that so dumb? Um, but I took it seriously because I had, you know, three pieces of advice to go on. Um, and so, I, I mean, in my first, I wrote four books in six years. Um, and my kids were little. I had, I had already given birth to two children at that point. Um, and all I can say is I was young. I mean, I guess my body held, could, could hold out for a little bit longer. Um, I think I would tell myself that that is a lie. You do not have to write a book a year. And you'll probably write better books if you don't write one every year, you know? Um, and that this is a long haul journey. Uh, you know, it might be different if I was trying to support a family off what I do. 
So I want to acknowledge that if that's what you're trying to do, maybe you do have to write a book a year. And I'm so sorry. You know, that must be really, really stressful. Um, but if you don't worry about making any money, then you can write at your own pace. And I think you can give the best work that is kindest to your audience and also to yourself at the same time. I wish I'd known that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I could have received it because I was scared to death that I would never finish anything. Um, and, and I thought I would, I would get too old and I would not that age would be an impediment, but I would get too tired (laughs) that I would run out of energy for for creative work. And, and then I would have missed my chance and the, and the door would close forever. And I felt like I better do it right now. The next question asker said, I love playing with words, crafting stories, but I dread the marketing and self-promotion on social media. Do you have any thoughts on that? And... Helena did have some thoughts on that. Gone are the days when you signed a contract and then someone swept away all the details from your hands and you just got to focus on the craft. Um, that doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist for musicians, for visual artists. It's, everybody's on their own. Um, so the expectation is already unrealistic that you should be good with computers and you should be a fabulous and engaging personality online and and you should you know produce content every three minutes and um if have you ever read what instagram will reward you for algorithmically speaking posting multiple times per day posting at the same time every day it is it's they're asking for a machine Um, and so you can just say, well, no, that's what I've kind of said. <laughs> I'm supposed to do hashtags. Meh. Um, <laughs> no one can find you. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it just, I feel like, okay, I'm going, this is the way that I can share it. That is sustainable for me. If a publisher were to come along and say, I will pay you this. If you do this, I might do that. Uh, no one's ever done that for me. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I'm just sort of stumbling along. Hashtags. Right. <laughs> no, wonder, no wonder they haven't come along. Right. <laughs> Absolutely fair point. Um, but I'm not too worried about it. I like being partly invisible. That's a comfort to me. Um, I think it gives me more time to think and not worry about the people out there, you know, in yeah. the dark. <laughs> no, Megan, I mean, I think it's so important that you decide what is it that I can what is it i can feel good about mm. i i wouldn't feel good about making up hashtags either Oof. so i don't do it there you go and uh, you know and that's probably not the only reason i haven't sold a ton of books but yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> but it's writers are infamous for this uh, if you really look for some of the writers that you love most you're like oh the last time they posted was on a myspace you know <laughs> i love megan whalen turner and her king steve series you're not gonna find her anywhere she doesn't care She'll come out once every three to five years and show you her new book and say, there you go. And then she's back into the cave. And I'm like, oh, I love it. You know, so there's lots of ways to do it. Um, yeah. The next question came from an audience member who harkened back to Helena's earlier remarks about the Industrial Revolution and the way that the Industrial Revolution came to cause us to think of our, our value in terms of our productivity um, almost uh, as as uh, machines that produce. And so this person's questions what this person's question was how do you see a day as being a good day when you don't value production 
productivity? How do you decouple the idea of I had a good day and a, a, a meaningful day um, apart from measuring it in, in terms of how much I produced? Um, that's a very good question. What's a good day? Um, there are lots of different kinds of good days. Uh, so I got to do, for Mother's Day, a little writing retreat this week in a, in a tiny house, you know, one of those where it's like this big, um, in Chattanooga. And it was 43 hours alone in a tiny house. I know the number of hours, y'all. Um, and my goal for that, I started, I started a new novel a few weeks ago that I'm not ready to write at all. And I just said, okay, I'm just going to force it out. I'm going to shake something loose and make this thing exist by just the force of my will. And so I had written about 6,500 words. And my goal for while I was there was to top 10,000 words. And so for me, in the 43 hours, I crossed the line for 10,000 words. And that was a great day. Um, today I wrote a little thing this morning that took me 10 minutes and then I fed my kids and we talked through all their sadness about the summertime and, you know, I steamed some clothes. That was a good day. Um, and, uh, if I was expecting the one to be the other, I would, I would never have a moment's rest. Mm. I, uh, I now can't remember what I was what I was reading, but I thought it was really insightful. Somebody talking about the days we that we think of as a good day. Mm-hmm. If our whole life was that, it wouldn't be much of a life. Like, <laughs> yeah. I love vacation. Yeah, but if I if all my life was vacation and then I was on my deathbed, I'd say that was kind of a drag. Yeah, <laughs> I was kind of, I was kind of too bad. Well, too bad I was on vacation the whole time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, yeah. Our last question came from a an audience member who said this. I grew up as the Harry Potter books were con- were coming out, so my idea of what it meant to be a writer was to be wildly successful, make more money than the Queen of England, and achieve worldwide fame. I've also always been an ambitious person and struggled not to find my identity in my writing. Who reads it? Who praises it? How much of an impact does it make? I'm only recently dismantling this performative view. Do you have any advice or help as I continue unlearning this notion of success? Um. Your question makes me think of this, and it's the issue of whether or not your deep questions as a person have been answered or not. So if you are trying to figure out if you are loved and acceptable and worthy and your work has value and you have a place in the world, if you're trying to figure that out through your writing, then you're running around to the world asking them to give you something. Tell, tell me, tell me it's okay. Am I good enough now? Am I lovable? Am I worthy? Does this matter? Will I get to the end of my life and be glad that I did this? That is not a gift to the world. It's a debt they got to pay to you. Um, and it's a really awful way to walk around. <laughs> um, so my advice would be get those questions settled within yourself between you and God, in your own community, wherever it is that you've got to go to find out, am I okay if this never goes anywhere? Go there. Find out. And then you are completely free to give whatever work you can give to the world, no strings attached. Elena Sorensen, <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, this Glad has been be amazing. Thanks for having me.
The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.